This is Off Zero, brought to you by LearnBitcoin.io. Hey, everybody, welcome to Off Zero, the new podcast from the team at LearnBitcoin.io, where any topic is welcome as long as it's Bitcoin. As a reminder, LearnBitcoin.io is the easiest way for individuals, companies, and governments to learn about Bitcoin. It includes CE credits for CFP and IWI and access to a Discord community where you can meet with fellow Bitcoiners and connect and network. Today, I'm joined by Matt Golier, who's a financial advisor with Vista Investment Partners, a registered investment advisor located in Richmond, Indiana. Matt became a Bitcoiner in 2020 and since then has focused on bridging the gap between Bitcoin and traditional wealth management, both for clients and fellow financial advisors. Matt, a warm welcome to you. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Now, every guest who joins Off Zero gets to choose a charity that LearnBitcoin.io donates to on behalf of them. And Matt, you've chosen the Human Rights Foundation's Bitcoin Development Fund. Yep. Awesome. Thank you for and that. They, That's really cool that you do that. No, no, no problem at all. And and just as a reminder for everybody listening, the uh, Bitcoin Development Fund supports software developers who are making Bitcoin network more secure, private, decentralized, and resilient. So, Matt, that's a fantastic uh, charity. Thanks for uh, naming that one. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. All right, let's kick in. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. We know you're a financial advisor. We know not many financial advisors know about Bitcoin, so you're an exception rather than the rule. Uh, how did you get into it? And uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and your company. Yeah, sure. So I graduated from Indiana University in 2014, when I started my career. Um, started it off with a life insurance company and then was a financial advisor in two different bank programs before at the end of 2019, I started uh, discussions with the managing partner here at Vista, Brett Guiley, about uh, potentially joining the team here. And in the beginning of 2020, we decided it was a good fit and decided to, for a variety of reasons, that that was the right career move. And so my first day here at Vista was March 23rd of 2020, which was <laughs> the day Indiana shut down for COVID. And I believe it was the bottom of the S&P 500 COVID crash. So uh, interesting time to make a career move. But um, with that, I found myself uh, with some time on my hands. And it was then that I fell down the Bitcoin rabbit hole um, and really deeply researched it for the first time. Uh, Bitcoin first got on my radar in 2017, which I think was the case for a lot of people with the price run up that happened that year. And I'm embarrassed to say that at the time, because that's when clients first started asking about it, I more or less told them that Bitcoin was digital beanie babies and purely speculative, not a suitable asset to hold for the long term. And that uh, opinion was based on some research that I had done. But at the time, every re every resource that I was able to locate was actually a crypto resource. and. If you remember uh, crypto kitties on Ethereum and all the ICOs and everything going on there. Um, at the time, I just could not see the Bitcoin signal through the crypto haze and um, kind of just came to the conclusion. All right, I've seen this before. I know what this is. And then, of course, the price crashed shortly after that year. And I kind of declared victory. It's like, OK, I was right. 
And then I didn't pay much attention to Bitcoin for the next two years. But then I found myself, uh, the world was shut down. I was at a new job. We weren't running in-person client appointments. So I decided I should at least read a book about Bitcoin. So I ordered uh, the Bitcoin Standard by Saifedean Amos. And um, I didn't need convinced as far as the background in Austrian economics or anything like that. I had studied that on my own before. Um, as primed as I was to embrace Bitcoin, I'm kind of frustrated it took me that long to really look into it. But that was the light bulb moment before I was even done with that book. I realized this is uh, probably the most important financial innovation that will happen in my career. So I began the long, arduous journey of figuring out how to integrate Bitcoin into my new company that I just joined. That's very cool. And, you know, I should preface uh, this conversation by saying none of this, of course, is financial advice. Um, this is for educational purposes only. Um, and uh, it's an interesting background that you describe. I, you know, I haven't found too many people that got heavily involved pre-2017. I think that was the eye-opening moment for everyone. And, and it certainly was one hell of a run-up for Bitcoin uh, mm -hmm. during that period of time. It was very explosive. And then since then, you know, I, I, one of the questions, I speak to financial advisors all the time because obviously we've got learnbitcoin.io and there seems to be an awful lot of confusion between crypto, you know, these tens of thousands of crypto tokens and projects and then Bitcoin, right? This, this is a constant question I get, you know, isn't crypto Bitcoin? Isn't Bitcoin crypto? Aren't they all the same? Uh, do you have any, any thoughts or views? And like, how do you kind of, how do you discuss that topic with people? Yeah, it's a challenge because I, in my opinion, that is the single biggest hurdle that mm -hmm. most people, but specifically financial advisors have in understanding Bitcoin is they very reasonably look at the crypto space as a whole and decide to stay away from it um, for obvious reasons. FTX being one of the most uh, explosive examples in, in you know recent years. But um, the way I talk about it is that um, Bitcoin solved or found a solution to the Byzantine generals problem. And that was the fundamental innovation, the ability for a shared ledger to exist in cyberspace and for anyone to be able to use that in order to keep track of a monetary ledger and for the entire world even among participants that don't know or trust each other to come to consensus or agreement on what the truthful state of that ledger is without any trusted ledger keeper or intermediary that's the new thing that's what bitcoin brought into the world that did not exist before that Every crypto token that came after that uninvented, unsolved the Byzantine general's problem by reintroducing a trusted ledger keeper. In this case, they just replaced a bank or a central bank with a foundation or a corporation or a nonprofit or a DAO or some other entity, but fundamentally they didn't create a new thing. And they're all called crypto that came to be the nomenclature for it, largely because it, they're all based on digital signatures and public key cryptography. But I don't view that really as a distinction. Any banking app you use uses public key cryptography. And so that to me is not a fundamental distinction between the two. Bitcoin's an innovation because it's an asset without an issuer. And 
everything else is trying to reinvent something that can only be discovered once and that only needs to be discovered once. And it was with Bitcoin. That's such. I, I love how you say that that crypto basically undiscovered everything that Bitcoin has discovered. That's the first first time I've heard it kind of um, proposed that way, and, and it makes complete sense. The other thing that I look at is, you know, obviously there is a massive fog of regulatory clarity right now. Um, you know, the the SEC um, has not necessarily. Um, uh, confirmed what all these tokens are, but in the absence of, of congressional law, uh, I believe that the prevailing thought is that uh, most of these tokens, these crypto coins, are unregistered securities. Um, and I, I do know that uh, the SEC has uh, made mention before of Bitcoin being a commodity or at least not an unregistered security. And so when I speak to financial advisors about education, I am very, very cautious uh, about making sure they understand the difference between those two things. And, and I assume that that kind of carries through to prospects and clients, people who are asking you about um, about Bitcoin as well. Yeah, for sure it does. I, I would say that that's a big confusion point for investors and clients as well. Yeah. What are the top three questions you get from uh, from clients about Bitcoin? <laughs> um, boiling it down to the top three, um, I, I could name twelve, but maybe <laughs> I know, that, I know. <laughs> but maybe ones that you know are most applicable are, well, um, isn't the government just going to ban it or shut it down? Um, aren't you worried that we don't know who Satoshi Nakamoto is? And but how do you know there will only ever be 21 million? Mm -hmm. Those are definitely three of the top 10, I would say. That's interesting. Let's double click on the 21 million thing, because I, believe it or not, I, a lot of people still don't understand uh, the true scarcity of Bitcoin. Uh, and maybe we can also lop in the fact that when people say, I can't afford a Bitcoin, you know, we can talk a little bit about the unit economics as well. But describe that 21 million comment that you were mentioning. Yeah, so Bitcoin is a digital ledger that's purpose is to keep track of 21 monetary units called Bitcoins. And just like a dollar is subdividable into 100 cents, each Bitcoin is subdividable into 100 million Satoshis. So the Bitcoin ledger is a shared ledger that keeps track of the issuance and ownership of 2.1 quadrillion Satoshis. And the way that it does that is when Bitcoin first launched um, 15 years ago, uh, two days ago, Bitcoin just turned 15. Um, the way that it worked is on average every 10 minutes, 50 new Bitcoin would be issued. And every 210,000 blocks, that issuance gets cut in half. And we call that the halving. So it goes from 50 to 25 to 12 and a half to six and a quarter. And then in April of this year, it's set to get cut in half again to three and one eighth Bitcoin every 10 minutes. So when you look at that over about 140 years, it creates an asymptote where it infinitely approaches 21 million Bitcoin as the hard cap in the supply. And technically, the theoretical maximum, I think, is 20,999,999.97 something Bitcoin, but... Um, it's not as good of a brand as the 21 million. So, um, the way that it's enforced, because that is a good question. Um, you know, someone 
oftentimes, and I have this thought too, uh, back in 2017, is, well, sure, the existing protocol has an embedded issuance schedule, but what's to stop anyone from just changing the code? And my answer is nothing. And people have done that many, many times. But when you do that, the thing you just created is not Bitcoin and will not be recognized as Bitcoin by anyone running the Bitcoin software on their own device. So you're free to change Bitcoin however you want, but if you violate the rules of Bitcoin, you're no longer playing the same game as the Bitcoin network. You're off playing a different game all by yourself, and you would have to convince everyone else to come over and join you. Yeah, that, that's, I, I think that's at the root of, of self-governance and decentralization. This uh, really interesting combination of game theory and economic incentives at play. Um, and, and, you know, the, the, you, you mentioned this, like, of course, you could change 21 million to 42 million or whatever it happens to be. But you'd have to have a majority of, of individuals, nodes, uh, even developers on the Bitcoin network all agree that this were to be implemented. And that effectively would dilute them and their ownership. And therefore, they're economically disincentivized to make decisions like that. And I think that, you know, that economic incentive plus game theory is really at the, at the core of decentralization. Um, and it's hard for people to understand that because we're, in a, we're surrounded by centralization everywhere we go. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, for the first time, we have this novel technology. It's almost a trillion dollar asset class that doesn't need governance. It doesn't need someone telling us what to do. It really is, you know, it, after, after hundreds of years, we're looking at the separation of, of you know, money and state. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, it's hard. It's difficult to wrap your brain around how profound of an innovation that is, I yeah. think. Um, I don't think there's anyone who fully appreciates it, but um, it's not something you can sit down and think about for a few hours and, and crock it. You you really have to dig down and think about the second and third order effects. And um, the more you think about it, the more interesting it gets. For sure. Uh, you know, if Satoshi were around, he, she, they would definitely be receiving the uh, Nobel Prize in economics for for this uh, invention. And really, it is a combination. If you look at the Bitcoin prehistory, it's, it's a pretty solid combination of contributions from multiple cryptographers uh, over time, that has kind of led to to this. Well, that's interesting. Now, let me let me ask you a question. I find that it takes me an awfully long time in a conversation to speak to a financial advisor and get them to understand the value of Bitcoin education. Um, I live in this world. I breathe this world. You and I, we've we've had many conversations and met before. So this is kind of uh, our life. Why do you think it's so hard for the average financial advisor to um, to kind of break through on Bitcoin? A, a few different reasons. Um, I think one of them is the the healthy instinct to be conservative when it comes to new complex financial products. Um, not that I would categorize Bitcoin as a financial product necessarily, but um, it's ordinary and proper for a financial advisor to not jump at the first shiny new thing that comes out there and and put their clients' dollars into it. Mm-hmm. So I think that's part of it. And just the fact that financial advisors at any point in time have a million things they could be working on. And 
Bitcoin has to become enough of a priority where they will spend hours and hours and hours the time that it takes to just have a fundamental grasp on what it is. And just that is not an insignificant time commitment. And the majority of financial advisors um, haven't done that yet. And so that that part's understandable. I I was there uh, in their shoes six years ago. So I definitely understand that. So I think that's part of it. But then the other part of it is that I think that they tend to view it as like a tech stock where in and so the the idea of missing out on it is not properly weighted where right now there is a stock that is going to outperform Bitcoin over the next decade. Probably. I have no idea what that stock is, but I'm not necessarily worried about missing that for my clients because that's not what I and most financial advisors do for clients is try to pick out the hot next hot stock. You know, we help clients with financial planning and asset allocation and, and everything that goes along with that. So when they're thinking about the potential missed upside, both for them and their clients, I think they're thinking more about it. Like, okay, some people think this is the next Tesla or Apple or Google or whatever. Um, but then also, I don't think that they're appreciating because they don't yet understand what it is, that it's not just that Bitcoin is an opportunity. Bitcoin is also a threat to their business. Mm. Bitcoin is their competitor because if advisors are honest, um, in my opinion, a lot of what we do for a living is only necessary because currency doesn't hold its value. And I can say with confidence that the majority of clients that I've worked with in my career aren't truly investors. They're savers. They're not trying to deploy capital at risk in order to empower productive economic work, which is what an investor does. They're trying to preserve their purchasing power and retire someday. And it just so happens that they're never going to be able to do that holding currency. And even if they don't know why that is specifically, Everyone kind of intuitively knows that, you know, if you have a million bucks sitting in your checking account, you have to do something with it. <laughs> it's probably not a good idea just to leave it there. Everyone just un- intuitively understands, you know, you have to do something with your money. And now for the first time in at least 50 years, um, there is an alternative to hiring an asset manager who's going to take your money, go out into the securities markets and try to generate a return above the rate of devaluation of the currency. Now you have an option to just save money and Bitcoin's what gives you that option. So the other thing I would say to financial advisors is whether you talk about Bitcoin to your clients or not, your clients already own it and they're going to learn about it from somewhere whether that's you or somebody else. And over time, that will become a more practical and more reasonable alternative to securing the services of a financial advisor for Mm -hmm. most people in most cases. So those are the twin, I think, blind spots of not only not seeing the upside innovation and how important Bitcoin is or could be, but also if that's true, the threat that that represents to the traditional asset management business. For sure. For sure. Well said. Uh, There's a lot of talk right now about Bitcoin ETFs. Mm -hmm. Um, And when I when I speak with some financial advisors, they 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 
they might be able to tell a client who's super interested where to go to purchase Bitcoin today. But being able to open an account and click buy on a spot Bitcoin ETF within 15 seconds is also very alluring, especially if you get some fees uh, for it. Um, what's your view on, on the upcoming ETFs? Obviously, nothing's been approved yet as of the, this particular recording. Um, what do you think is going to happen over the next few months, assuming an ETF or set of ETFs are approved? And so... Um in the vast majority of cases, I don't anticipate that we will use it. Um, we've uh, put a lot of work into being able to offer clients actual Bitcoin that they have the option to withdraw into their own custody if and when they're ready. And so other than you know a few niche scenarios where it, the security makes more sense than owning the actual Bitcoin, I, I don't really anticipate using it, but I think it will be very, very good for Bitcoin in almost every way. And one of those is that you have a large pool of capital that is interested enough in Bitcoin that it would make an allocation to it. But that capital or the people controlling that capital are not willing to go through the headache of opening a, a crypto exchange account and figuring all that out. But they would make an allocation in if they could do it in their existing brokerage account. So. Mm -hmm. I do think that, and by all indications, it looks like there will be um, a new source of capital flow into Bitcoin that otherwise right now is not willing or able to do that. And that you would think would have a predictable impact on the price. Although, of course, nothing's certain there. And But then the other thing I'm optimistic about that I think will play out, because, you know, among the Bitcoin community, one of the criticisms of the Bitcoin ETF is that it's paper Bitcoin. And that is true. It's not Bitcoin. It's a Bitcoin IOU. And a Bitcoin IOU is not as good as Bitcoin. But it is better than nothing, which is what a lot of people right now have. So it's an incremental improvement toward hyper Bitcoinization or Bitcoin adoption. But I'm optimistic because I think it will replace crypto exchanges as the top of the funnel for new Bitcoiners. Mm. It will mm. become the most frictionless place for people to make their first Bitcoin purchase. Because in a lot of cases, they don't even have to open a new account. They can just buy the ETF in their existing bro brokerage account. And um, the reason I'm excited about that is because for all the clients that I've talked to who have just you know bought Bitcoin off on their own, the story is almost always I opened a Coinbase account or I opened a crypto exchange account and I bought Bitcoin and a bunch of these other coins. Because when you buy Bitcoin on a crypto exchange, the logical next step is to try to figure out what are all these other tokens. When you buy a Bitcoin ETF in your brokerage account, I think the logical next step for those investors is to learn more about Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. So I see that as a cleaner uh, adoption path for people to go from owning no Bitcoin to holding a significant percentage of their net worth in self-custody Bitcoin, which and is, this is the finish line. And this is an important distinction and differentiator. Many people might not know that you can... Uh, purchase Bitcoin, you can store and self-custody Bitcoin 
um, yourself, ultimately, uh, very similar to gold. And I think a lot of people in the Bitcoin community are a little bit nervous about these ETFs. It is yet another way for large established players to control a certain percentage of the stock, right, if you will, uh, in the stock to flow model of Bitcoin. And, it, you know, you can open a history book and see within 30 seconds flat in 1933, I think it was April 5th, 1933, ironically enough, Satoshi's mentioned birthday, uh, April 5th, um, we had Executive Order 6102 from Franklin Delano Roosevelt that basically demanded uh, everyone who was hoarding uh, gold at the time submit it to their banks. And, and I think ultimately the uh, central banks and the Treasury took control of that. And whenever I speak, ironically enough, people say, oh, you can't get, a, you can't get across to older individuals. And I say, actually, it's the older individuals who have heard stories about their parents who had gold and they had to actually give their gold up and they remember losing that freedom, uh, that element of control over their own money. So it's important for people to understand you can do that and actually you, you and your company enable that. Uh, for people, which is very different from getting exposure to an ETF, a, a critical difference. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And that that's funny that I, I've had the same experience as well. It's counterintuitive, but <clears throat> in my experience, the baby boomers and the older millennials, it tends to click faster than when I'm talking to um, colleagues or investors who are closer to my own age or younger Um I think part of that's ideological, the way they see the world and the way that they think about trust in the existing system. But um, that that's not something I would have expected when I first embarked on, you know, trying to educate people about Bitcoin. For sure. For sure. Um, well, that's really interesting. And so the, you know, there are a number of tailwinds right now for for Bitcoin. We, we obviously have the ETFs and, and you know, there's, uh, I think uh, somebody had mentioned on, on X today, there's only 1.88 million liquid Bitcoin on exchanges around the world. Um, and if we work down from the 21 million and we have 19 million in change that have been mined, we probably have over a million in a variety of wallets owned by Satoshi that are locked away, uh, we, we believe. Another four to six million Bitcoin that might be lost. And then it ranges between eight and 10 million Bitcoin are in the hands of long-term holders, people that are hold for a year, two years, three years. So that creates a, uh, a supply shock ultimately, right? That's, that's the first kind of data point that I've heard out there with a record amount of low Bitcoin available for purchase on exchanges. Uh, the second is that we have this thing called the halving that you mentioned, which is a programmatic uh, uh, supply shock built into Bitcoin's code every 210,000 blocks, roughly every four years. The, the amount of Bitcoin that is dispersed to the miners uh, as a reward gets cut in half. Uh, and then, of course, we have an election year. Uh, and markets tend to kind of react interestingly in election years. So I would probably go as far as to say is we've got we've got a number of tailwinds right now for for Bitcoin that I think are exciting for people. Um, and, you know, they should be learning about about this new technology. Yeah, I would. For all the reasons you just mentioned, I, I think a lot of people are going to have their light bulb moment like I and a lot of other people had in 2020 where something will happen that makes them say, OK, I need to at least know what this is. And. To me, that, that's the first step of, you know, I'm not just going to read an article about it or, you know, I'm, I'm actually going to spend a Saturday afternoon trying to figure this thing out. Yeah. Um, 
sometimes it's because the price explodes upward. Sometimes it's because of um, regulatory or, um, you know, even criminal things happening in the crypto space. Um, it can be a variety of things. But yeah, for all those reasons, I think a lot of people are going to have that light bulb moment this year. And as, as a financial advisor, where uh, point us to the trusted sources of information on Bitcoin. There's so much stuff out there that is that can be considered misleading. Where do you tend to go for your your knowledge? And maybe we break that up. Like, what's the best option for a 101 for a financial advisor all the way through to I need weekly or daily updates on what's happening in the market? Where do you tend to go? Yeah, so um, a new one that uh, I think is a great option is Learn Bitcoin. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was not, a, I didn't mean for that to be a plug, but thank you very much. That's awesome. Yeah, uh, no, I, I think that's great what you built. And uh, I, I think that's a phenomenal way for a financial advisor or any other professional to start getting a good grounding on what Bitcoin is and why it's important. Um, there's a few books that I tend to recommend. Uh, Inventing Bitcoin by Jan Pritzker tends to be the first one because it's about 90 pages. It's a pretty quick read, but it covers all the basics of what Bitcoin is and how it works. It doesn't dive too deeply into the economics or any of the underlying theory there, but it gives a very good grounding, especially for non-technical people in what a hash function is, how Bitcoin mining works, how the supply cap is credibly enforced through those mechanisms. And um, so that's one. Uh, the Bitcoin standard, uh, that's the first one I read. Um, that's right up there. And that, especially for someone who's not familiar with Austrian economics or the underlying theory there, that would be a top book I would recommend to them. Um, because a, a, lot of, a lot of the hurdles people have in understanding Bitcoin are... Uh, leftover Keynesian economic myths that they were taught in school that just are not the case. So uh, in some cases, they have to unlearn certain things in order to be able to understand Bitcoin. Uh, one of those is the fact that uh, you don't need money with an elastic supply that someone can manipulate in order for an economy to function. Um, somehow, the existing system has embedded that into everyone's brains that... If the government doesn't manage the currency supply, the whole economy is going to fall apart. Um, and that that's just not true. Austrian theory says that any, any amount of money is sufficient for an economy as long as it's sufficiently divisible, which is what Bitcoin is. So the, those are two of the top books. Um, the Sailor series on Robert Breedlove's podcast, I think, is phenomenal. Um, so that that's like, I don't know, 20 hours. 24 hours of total total content. So anything by Michael Saylor, I tend to recommend. Um, he He's sort of in the class of 2020 with me, but I had the privilege of watching him gallop out in front of everybody else and understand this at a depth and, uh, and so quickly that, um, yeah, I think he's kind of a special figure in in that because he also brings a strong traditional finance background. He has yes. a good understanding of capital markets and, um, you know, public publicly traded companies and gap compliant accounting and, and all of that. So yeah, anything by sailor. And then, uh, most Bitcoin only exchanges like Swan river unchained, 
they all have great educational resources. So I would say any Bitcoin only exchange is a pretty good bet as far as getting quality education. That's awesome. Great. Last question for you. Most important question. You've got a huge microphone and you can speak to the entire world for 30 seconds. What are you going to tell everybody? Oh, I'm going to spend my 30 seconds thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would just say, I mean, I think it's appropriate here. Learn about Bitcoin. Um, I don't, I don't ever recommend that someone invest in something they don't understand. And so for someone who does not understand Bitcoin, I never recommend that they go out and buy it. But I do recommend that everyone go out and learn about it because in my opinion, uh, Bitcoin is an innovation on the level of electricity in the sense that it's not a new app. It's not a new stock. It's a fundamentally new technology that's going to touch every area, good and service in the economy. And just like electricity or the Internet or, you know, other innovations in that category, it's not going to happen in a decade. It's going to take place over 50, 80, 100 years, but it will disrupt everything. So if if there's one thing that's worth learning about in order to be prepared for the future and to take advantage of the future, I would say Bitcoin's the thing to learn. Fantastic. Thanks, Matt Gallier. We'll uh, link to your bio and uh, ways that people can connect with you. We'll also add in all those uh, links to the books and uh, other resources that you talked about on the pod today. Thanks so much for joining and uh, look forward to talking to you again soon. Yeah, thanks for having me. Take care. Learn more at learnbitcoin.io.